Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this holy shit episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk, and I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelski. And oh, man, Todd Capone, round two, transparency sale, one of the best negotiation episodes of all time. Nick, why should people listen? Armand, one of the most frustrating parts for me about selling has always been the tail end of the deal. It's usually at the point when like, my boss has eyes on the deal, and they're frothing at the mouth, wanting to know when it's going to come in. And that's when buyers also start acting like sort of unreasonable and i'm like i want to get this deal in. we've sold the value we're talking about price and terms and uh and todd gives us some really good stuff to help, to help calm the chaos of the back half of the deal so you know when it's coming in you know what it's going to do for your quota and you can move on to selling some more and you know what, guys? At the end of most episodes, Nick asks you for something, and that probably puts a bad taste in your mouth. So I'm just going to ask you for it now. So transparently, we're going to ask you to subscribe to our YouTube channel at the end of this. So please just do it now. On with the show. A three, two, one. Let's ride. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. Today's show is brought to you by Exactly Forecasting, which is a flexible sales forecasting solution that uses AI and data to help you call an accurate sales forecast. Gartner says over half of sales leaders don't have high confidence in their forecast. One way we recommend to improve your forecast is to align as a team on explicit attributes that must be true in order to deem a deal forecastable. That way your forecast will get clearer and the team will know where to focus efforts. We put together a forecasting 101 guide with our friends at Exactly. Get it for free in the show notes. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, Pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90 Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. 
All right, Todd, welcome to the show. We start every single interview with your top three actionable takeaways. So let's get your three. All right. So tip number one is start embracing the idea of cards face up negotiating. And I know that sounds crazy, but in this world where there is the proliferation of information, I believe AI is eventually going to expose our pricing models. We've got to stop eroding trust right at the goal line. And what that means, cards face up, is your company, all of you listening, you've got four things that drive your pricing model. Number one is volume, so how much they buy. The more they buy, the better. Number two is timing of cash, how fast they pay, right? The faster they pay, the better. Number three is length of commitment, which means the longer they commit to your stuff, your products, your services, your technology, the better. And number four is the timing of the deal or forecastability, really important to your company. And the more that a company is willing to help you forecast, the better that is. And the more that should be reflected in the pricing too. That's where we start laying out the four levers and use that as the basis for your conversations. It'll make your deals more valuable. You'll build trust to the goal line and your deals will become more predictable too. So that's tip number one. Beautiful. What's tip number two? Tip number two is we've got to stop with the fake expiring discounts. And they sound like this. Hey guys, if you're willing to sign by the end of the month, we'll give you 10% off. There's an ironic thing about that. That actually drives people to wait instead of to accelerate. Number two is it slows down your deals, meaning that it makes that buyer want to ask for more because that was too easy. Right. And so your deals start to erode in the credibility and the price. So as a result, it slows down, your deal values go down. And so the tip here, the thing you can do instead is this to be able to tell the customer that, hey, listen, there's tremendous value in our ability to predict our business. If you are willing to mutually align around when you think you can get this done, and we'll create a close plan around it and help you through that journey. And we'll give a little buffer on it. But if you can hold to it, we're willing to pay you in the form of a discount to hold to that date. That sounds a lot different than that 10% off by the end of the month. That sounds like a Kohl's coupon. And instead, what you're doing is now they've got skin in the game. You've got alignment. You've got predictability. And they know what you're paying for. And that is the difference. So quit the fake expiring discount. And instead, swap it for mutual alignment around timing. Pay for that, not the end of the month. Love it. Round us out, Todd. What's number three? All right. Number three is something that drives me cuckoo too. And it's this idea that so many companies pay for case studies. Meaning, hey, I'll give you 5% off or 10%, whatever it is you want, in exchange for you giving us a case study. There's so much wrong with this. I'll give you one analogy that I want you to think about, though is imagine you're buying something important for your house, electronics. Maybe it's a contractor is going to come in, put in new flooring. You go to the website, you read all the five-star reviews. It influences your decision to go with that contractor. Then right at the goal line, right when you're about to sign, you find out that all of those five-star reviews were paid for. Would that make you more confident or less? Probably less, right? Now, when you're doing it, you're in a negotiation, the customer's spending six figures, five for whatever it is, and they find out right at the goal line through you saying, hey, we'll pay you in the form of a discount for a case study. 
you are essentially telling them that all those case studies they read that influenced their decision to go with you were probably paid for too. You got to be careful, right? Earn your case studies, right? There's no teeth in contracts around case studies as a concession anyway. Earn your case studies. Stop paying for them. That's tip number three. All right, Todd. So for those folks who have not heard your original episode, one, go back and watch it. Two, right now, you mentioned the four levers in a negotiation. You had volume, timing of cash, length of commitment, and then the timing of your deal. Mm-hmm. My guess is you're not giving pricing saying it's $100,000 and the way that you can get a discount is through these four things immediately right off the bat. They're like, well, okay, all right, let's play. How do you actually insert and lay out the levers organically in a sales conversation? I want everybody who's listening to just think for a second. Doesn't it feel weird that you need a different personality to negotiate than you do to sell? Like, let's start there. That was something that always bothered me growing up in sales is that I'm building trust right to the goal line. The customer says yes. And I go, all right, cool. Subconsciously, I'm going to start lying to you now. And as a matter of fact, I learned all I know about negotiating from former FBI hostage negotiators. Like, what? Like, we don't tase the buyer and drag them to jail afterwards. We have to have a relationship with them where they buy more and advocate. And so as a result, like, we're not negotiating the release of hostages from a bank heist. That stuff's awesome. Like, don't get me wrong. Don't kill me, Chris Voss. Like, don't come to my house. But the point being that, like, we are to a point where in a subscription or as a service economy, this approach is so important. And so to your question, Armand, the analogy there is for anybody that's ever run a marathon before, like I haven't, I run best when chased, but it's not like you wake up on a Sunday and you're like, hey, I heard there's a marathon going on. Like, you know what? People say that's fun. I'm going to put some shoes on and go do it. Like you would go over there and your toenails would be popping off by mile seven, right? It's a process, but it is an event. And negotiation is the same exact thing. It's an event. It happens. But you've got to lay the foundation very early. And so my advice for everybody there is when you're first talking about pricing, so the customer comes up to you, like, how do you price this thing? For you to give a range, A, like set a range. Like, hey, based on our understanding so far, your investment's probably going to be between X and Y. And we're going to get into the details and get you closer. And it's based on some assumptions. Those assumptions are wrong. That's going to be off. But let's start there. Your pricing is between X and Y. And it's based on how much you buy, right? Licenses, locations, orders, whatever that volume component is. And by the way, that the pricing is also, our structure is based on upfront annual net 30 payments, and it requires a commitment for a minimum of a year. So you've laid those first three levers out in the first discussion. Now, going back for a second, for everybody that has discomfort setting a range, If you're talking about a six-figure deal to a four-figure buyer, one of you is in the wrong discussion. You better figure that out now versus two months from now and vice versa. If you're talking about a four-figure deal and they're like, you got to get that out. So it starts at the first conversation. I believe you lay out the first three levers. When you make the proposal, just make sure it's clear that, hey, listen, your price is based on volume, whatever that volume component is, and it's earned a 10% volume discount based on the tier you're at. Oh, and by the way, it's upfront annual net 30, minimum one-year commitment. 
When the negotiation then happens, when you actually get down to it, that's when I like to introduce the fourth one. Because there's no way to get mutual alignment around timing until you're down to the goal line. And that's when you can say, hey, your price is X. It was based on volume, how fast you're paying, how long you're committing. And oh, by the way, there's value in our ability to predict our business. And so there's an opportunity to mutually align there. As a salesperson, like I understood, okay, a longer contract, of course, that's better for the company and more seats. Of course, that's better because those are directly related to my comp plan. But what I learned from you, and I've learned this now running a company at 30 Minutes to President's Club, is when Armand and I are making decisions about how we're going to grow our business, yeah, we really, really, really value knowing, oh, we're going to get this deal in by this date, so we can then use the money from that to make an investment in this area. And I didn't realize that as a salesperson, and the reason I'm calling it out now is if you're an IC listening to this, while that might not directly impact your comp plan, the reason that you're explaining why it matters to your customer is not, oh, I've got a quota I got to hit by the end of the month. It's that our business cares about the predictability of those things. So we know where we are going to go as a business and where we're going to invest. I would argue you do get paid for timing of cash, even if you don't. Here's what I mean. Imagine that you have laid out upfront annual net 30 payment terms and the customer says, hey, you know what? We need monthly payments and we need net 60. Now you could Tommy boy it, okie dokie, whatever, sure, we don't care, I don't, right? And like, now you just eroded the complete integrity of your pricing model. I know you don't get paid any different if they slow down, that's cool. But what can you can do is trade that. The levers go both ways. And so when you've got a customer that wants to pay slower, can you trade for something you do get paid for? Maybe it is, hey, listen, our pricing, is based on upfront annual net 30. If you want monthly net 60, you can have it, but something else is going to have to be adjusted to reflect that. Now, here's a couple of ideas. You know, you could commit to more volume, right? We've talked about this other division here that we're trying to accelerate in. If you can do that, we're willing to pay you in the form of slower payment terms. Or, hey, you want monthly net 60? Well, that's something that we're willing to pay for if you're willing to commit to a longer term. So I know you're committed to one year, but there's value in a two year or a three year. And so the point being, when we say we don't get paid for something, you do if you can exchange it for something that is tangibly in your comp plan. All right. So get that like that idea out of your head and you can switch to get value for the things that don't seem to matter in your comp plan because it's all valuable in the end. Todd, on this note, one of the things that will determine how much flex I am willing to apply to the organization, the contract, and all of those things is oftentimes determined by the prestige and the size of the customer. But I imagine that it would be really, really complex if I stepped into every negotiation with a completely different negotiation grid for myself, saying for this customer, they get quarterly, but that one, they get monthly. So I'm curious... How do you plan your levers before a negotiation based on the size of company or based on all the different types of deals that may end up coming your way? So number one is I've always tried to drive into my organizations. Like I was a CRO in my last role and we were selling to the smallest of the small to like the massive companies, right? Our price is our price. 
right? And our price is a price means that we've got a volume grid that's based on, you know, how many seats or whatever you were buying. And so if you're buying 10 seats, it's X. If you're buying 10,000, it's Y, which is a lot less than X per, right? You've got that established, doesn't matter. Now, the other pieces though, it's the same. Meaning our, that price is based on upfront annual net 30, minimum one-year commitment. Now, if you want to switch those things, you can, but you're going to have to trade for something else, right? And maybe it requires you to pay for it. We became very consistent. Didn't matter if you were small or big around that because that's what builds pricing integrity. And I'm a believer that A, cards face up negotiation is the future because you've got people changing jobs all the time too. So that big company person's going to go to a small one. That small one's going to go to a big one. And I believe that AI eventually is going to expose our pricing models anyway. And so we've got to get consistent with it. What I always did is make sure that those levers are simple for you to remember. One example is we were dealing with a big company called Schlumberger down in Houston, million and a half dollars a year for three years, right? We went into that negotiation. They wanted a discount. I walked them through, hey, your pricing is based on these four things. Let's go through them. The second one was the timing of cash. And I explained to them that, listen, your pricing is based on upfront annual net 30 payments, but there's value in our ability to get that cash faster. If you're willing to pay for the whole three years now, we will pay you in the form of a discount for that, 5% per year. So the 5% was very simple. So I can remember it, my reps can remember it, it becomes scalable. And they ended up paying all three years upfront net 30. My advice though is just keep it simple. I always like the 5% for everything and then have a volume tier component. The reps are listening, probably not up to you. Your company probably already has something like that. And if they don't, they should establish one that's consistent, small or big. So what I love, Todd, is you've stacked all of the complexity in the key metric through which you price, which is typically number of seats, number of employees at the company, number of users, number of admins, what have you, right? And that's the place where you need to be able to have that sliding scale. And then everything just scales proportionally, whether you're SMB, mid-market, or enterprise, if you want quarterly, monthly, annual billing, what have you. So you've made it simple for your reps and you've made it simple as a rep to go into any negotiation to be able to follow a simple grid and make your negotiations repeatable and predictable. I want to talk about when things tend to go a little bit off in this scenario, which is you show up to a call. We have this great transparent relationship. You walk through the four levers of a negotiation that are potentially that I could pull to earn myself a discount. And I say, Todd, I want a 30% discount, but I don't want to pull any of those levers. Mm -hmm. They basically want to have their pie and eat it. They're like, I understand. I appreciate that you're laying out these levers, but I know behind the scenes, I probably don't have to pull all of these levers all at once. What do you do in that scenario when someone's calling your bluff? Well, you've got to stay consistent because if you gave a 30% discount without getting anything for that, you're essentially just providing charity to their bottom line and you're making your deal and your company less profitable. What ends up happening is that when they ask for that 30% off, I'll give you one example, GlaxoSmithKline. We were doing a high seven figure deal and they were asking for termination for convenience. 
So for anybody that doesn't familiar with that, I wake up in a cold sweat all the time thinking about my termination for convenience conversations. But what that is, is especially the bigger companies, they're asking for an out clause that says, hey, we reserve the right to get out at any time for any reason. So what do you do when they're like, we require that? Well, I remember when I taught at Salesforce, the COO is like, we tell them it's not our policy. Like nobody gives a crap about your policy. I know you're Salesforce, but nobody gives... Like Glaxo's policy is termination for convenience. You go to the levers, right? And you explain, hey, listen, our pricing is based on these four things. How much you buy, how fast you pay, how long you commit, when you sign. If you want termination for convenience, you can have it, but you're probably not going to like it because it reflects no commitment. And as a result, that three-year price that you've got now goes to what's essentially month to month and probably drives the price up 30 to 35%. Now, before you freak out, know that you've got termination for cause and warranty provisions, which means if we suck, you can get out anyway. So why don't we look at that as you're out? And if it's worth it to have the total out clause for any reason, well, I'll have my rep here share that pricing, but it is 35% more. Now, it started there. That was Glaxo. The procurement person, this woman was like, Todd, I don't give a crap. I'm not paying for it and I'm getting it. And so we kept going back and forth. And I just, I was like, sorry. I mean, that's our entire pricing model is based on commitment. And so we went nose to nose for three days until my CEO yelled at me. And he was like, Todd, it's the biggest deal in the company's history. Go accept termination for convenience. And so I walked back to my desk, like Charlie Brown, checking the the empty mailbox on Valentine's Day. I accepted it in exchange for them signing the next day. Three months later, what happened? We went and got a Series B. They sent in their forensic accountants to look at all our contracts and make sure that our valuation was accurate. What do you think the first contract is they looked at? Oh, Glaxo, who knew? And they're like, hey, uh, what's this? Uh, we had to accept it. It was, a, and you know, of course they were like, well, that's gonna impact your valuation. The point being, everybody, you've got to stand firm. Your price is your price. It's based on those four and any free giveaways drive your customers to asking for more, slowing down the deal, eroding the trust and confidence they have in your pricing model. And that impacts upsell, cross-sell and renewal too. You just don't do it. If you're confident in your pricing structure and you're not a startup with two customers, you've got tons of customers that are paying, have confidence that that is your price. What's your approach to saying no to your customer? Because I heard a couple examples here. Armand's question around, hey, the person's like, no, I just want a 30% discount. I'm not giving you anything in return. You got to say no to people. And then there was also the termination for convenience. And you said no to that person also. And I remember being a new salesperson and like, I built all this rapport and trust with a customer. And like, I'm talking to someone who is far more senior in their career. And it can be tough sometimes to be like, nope. And I don't want to be a jerk, And I also don't want to over-explain where they're like, oh, this guy's rambling now. So when I have to say no to a customer for any reason, are there any best practices that salespeople should be thinking about? Well, in each of these cases, you'll notice I didn't say no. I said, here's the way that the pricing structure works. And if you want it, yes, but you're probably not going to enjoy it, right? And so it's all about the explanation. For everybody listening, just know your company 
even in your home, when you're thinking about your personal economics, you want more money paid faster where you can predict it, right? Like that's every business, every individual, that's what drives us. And so once you've just grasped that idea and you can have a conversation as a steward of that organization to just go, hey, our company runs on you buying stuff, paying fast, committing, and helping us predict. That's that's it. And the things you're asking for rub that in different directions. The same thing with you know them asking for net 60 payment terms. This happens to me. Like I was just negotiating with a big software company, multi-billion, and they're like, hey, the we're changing the contract to net 60 for your payment. And I'm just this one dude. I got like somebody helping me with operations. Like that's it. I got them down to net 30 just by being a human being and being able to explain that, hey, like why is the net 60 important? Well, it's a company policy. Like, all right, cool. My business model is based on aligning payment to delivery because the only thing that I convert to revenue is my time. And as a result, if you want to pay net 60, you can, but we're going to have to adjust something else to account for that. And within 10 seconds, they're like, screw it, net 30 is fine, <laughs> right? So like, it's I didn't say no, I gave them a path to it. And that's the magic of understanding the four levers and why they matter. And I think that all of you, whether you're you know 22 or 62, you can relate to what actually drives a business because it's probably what drives you personally. One of the things you were talking about earlier was the idea of the predictability of the deal. And instead of saying, hey, you get a 10% discount if you close by the end of the month, talking through with the customer about a realistic timeline to close. And this is an error that I've made in the past where I had a customer say, hey, instead of upfront annual, can you do quarterly payments? And my response was, yes, we can. If you can get this thing done you know, by the end of the month, it's three weeks out. That seems reasonable in my mind. And then I hear back, oh, no, that's totally unreasonable. And then I'm like, oh, shoot, now I got to backtrack to like get to a different date. And it's like, they know I just pulled that date out of nowhere. And I'm wondering, can you talk through like, customer asks me for that. How do I respond? And how do I walk them through that close plan on the, the contract stuff? So the first time I tried this, right, it was July, it was Houston, it was hot. And they were trying to get it was one division that they were trying to accelerate and they were asking for a discount. And so what I explained to them when I got to that lever was, hey, listen, there's tremendous value in our ability to predict. And so if we can mutually align around the timing, that's something we're willing to pay you for, that predictability. And so I asked them, I was like, you're in a hurry, which is why I'm here, right? You wanted me to come in so we can get in this room and nail this down. Like, how much longer do we have in this process and what are the steps? And they were like, Dude, I, it could be two weeks, it could be six weeks. Like, I, I don't know. It's that there's like turns and twists and all that. And so I sat there and I was like, all right, it's mid July. Six weeks out will be like end of August. Like, is end of August reasonable? And they were like, maybe. And so I added a buffer to it and said, hey, listen, my rep here and I, who knew we've got quotas, we're quarterly driven. There's value in our ability to forecast this for the quarter. Do you think end of September is reasonable? And they were like, yeah, that's, of course, like, I hope so. If we're talking the end of September, something's gone wrong. And so we paid them in a form of a discount for that September alignment. And we reminded them of that over and over again. And we were able to then lay out the path of like, hey, what's going to happen here? Oh, you've got to do this, this, and this. 
With organizations like yours, we see this step and this step. Is that something you're going to have to do? Oh, no? Cool. And so we use that mutual alignment to be able to lay out mutually a plan that we can take together versus it being, what steps do you have, right? Like it's all about mutual and it's all about them understanding that forecasting is important, right? We've got investors, but for a lot of what you all are selling, it requires resource availability too. These people aren't just sitting around. Our ability to predict helps us align and prepare from a resource perspective. That's valuable to us and something we're willing to pay for. And so that's where it, where it starts. doesn't matter if it's procurement or anybody else to be able to go from there, once you've got the mutual alignment, to go, what are the steps? And let's kind of chart this out together just to make sure you can get that discount and that we're not frantic at the end. This is also a classic way that we've talked about on other shows where we like to use this as a mechanism to test if someone is truly a sophisticated buyer and knows how to get a deal done. We'll do things like putting people on a red line deadline, which is not just saying red lines need to be done in three months, but see if they know how long it takes to get first cuts back and then a second cut or how long it would take to get a council to council call on the books. And if you smell all of these foggy answers, right, that might mean that it's truly variable and you give them some buffer, but that might also mean that you have the wrong buyer in the room. So if you're just getting all of these muddy, non-committal answers, by mapping out the steps that Todd has already described, it's allowing you to suss out if this is the type of person who can even give you a commitment in the first place. Well, Armand, can I jump in on that? Because keep in mind though, we as salespeople, we're selling all day, right? These buyers, they maybe are buying something from us like our solution once a year, once ever. So I think more often than not, you're going to hear the cloudiness. And I believe it's our responsibility organizationally to help arm the reps to say, hey, listen, we closed 40 deals last month. Let's arm you as the sales rep to be able to have that conversation to say, hey, how long does it take to get the red lines back? And the rep, the customer's like, Hell if I know. And you go, all right, well, we, we're dealing with some companies like yours. And traditionally or typically we're seeing it's probably 10 days to two or three weeks. Does that sound about right? And you can be the Sherpa versus the person kind of laying it all on them. And then they look to you as, oh, these guys can help me. Like they can help me get this done and help me achieve my outcomes and maybe teach me about how my own organization works versus me having to try to figure it out. So Todd, let's continue to follow this train of thought. So let's say that we have a champion who we feel like, hey, Todd, the sales rep, is really trying to advise me. He's helping me figure out all the steps to get this deal done. And I feel like I know what it takes to get this deal done with my finance team. You agree on some sort of arrangement. You bring it back to your angry boss as the champion. And the boss comes back to you, Todd. And they're like, Todd, I know you agreed upon this with the original person on my team, but Todd, I'm coming for my second cut. What do you do when someone comes back for their second cut of meat? This is where this whole conversation around sharing the four levers with everybody. You don't have to wait until it's somebody who is capable of buying. Hey, our price is our price. It's based on these four things. What ends up happening more often than you might even expect is that your sponsors will be negotiating on your behalf to those people. So when that CFO gets and goes, hey, see if you can get 10% off, the sponsor is able to go, hey, here's how the pricing model works. And here's our path to get that. 
We can pay faster. We can commit longer. We can align around timing. We can commit to more volume. So a lot of those discussions start to go away. Now, there was one deal that we were working on the night before they were going to sign. Sponsor pings him and says, hey, CFO's got it. He's going to sign it, but he wants to talk to you first. And so Pete frantically calls me. He's like, can you get on this call with me? I'm like, yeah. So this dude gets on and he was like, listen, I know we're committing that the volume was 36,000 users. We've decided that we just want to commit to 18,000 users for now. And then we'll add that second 18,000 in six months. If you can update the contract, we're ready to go. Now, this dude was not involved in any conversation for the whole process at all. This is the first time we had ever talked to him. And so I look down at my, at my, my DMs and Pete is yelling profanities at me, just like, oh, there goes president. Like he's freaking out. I'm like, it's all right, brother, calm down. And so what I did was, again, go right back to the four levers and explain, like, first of all, be a human being. What's driving that desire to only commit to 18,000? Right. And he's just like, well, we want to make sure this works. That's quite a commitment. We want to get the 18 in and then we'll add later. Like, all right, that that's understandable. Our pricing model is I don't know if anybody's communicated this to you, but it's based on number one is volume. So the more users you commit to, the better it is for us and the more that's reflected in your pricing. You're getting quite a discount at 36,000. That goes away at 18,000. Right. It's the per is going to be much higher. By the way, your pricing is also based on, you know, annual upfront net 30, one-year commitment. And we are lined around timing, which we're paying you for to get done tomorrow. If you want the 18000 you can. I'll have Pete send you over that pricing. But you're going to see that as you add that additional 18000 in a few months, your overall investment is going to be quite a bit bigger. Now, if that's what you want, you can have it. That's cool. But then remember, you've got protections in the contract in case this sucks dead silence, right? Like you could hear tumbleweed blow through the phone. And I was IMing Pete. I was like, put your phone on mute. He's got to be the next one. This is a professional negotiator. Just shut the heck up. We waited. It felt like forever. It was probably like seven seconds. And sure enough, he was like, Pete, send me over the pricing. Hangs up. I don't even think he said goodbye. Next morning we wake up, there's the contract for 36,000 users, right? So the point being that even with these helicopter buyers, you're consistent and you're speaking from a business angle, like a lot of that goes away and they start to understand it. He understood it. And most of these buyers have never heard anything like this. So you've got the head start for everybody that's listening. Todd, very quickly, one of the things that I've heard you lean on a couple times is we've got buyers who often will want excessive flexibility in their contract for termination for convenience or like that scale up from 18,000 to 36,000. And you've talked about one of the ways that you're responding to that objection or resistance, whatever you'd call it, is saying like, you do have a way to get out of this contract if we're terrible. And I think most folks probably have termination for cause in their contracts, but can you explain what that means so that a salesperson can take it and then explain it to their next buyer if they do have that in their contracts? Yeah, good call. Any company that's selling anything that's meaningful, your contracts have guarantees of some sort. There's termination for cause, which means that somebody broke the rules. They broke the contract. Your product's not doing what you said it would do. That's termination for cause. Warranty is very similar. You've all experienced warranties. You buy something and it breaks. There's also service level commitments and it's called SLAs. So like service level agreements. Some contracts have that saying, our technology in a SaaS environment will have 99.9% .9 uptime, meaning when you log in, it's always going to be there. 
And when it breaks that, that is a ground for termination for cause. So that's, that's what that means is, hey, listen, if we suck, if we don't do what we say we're going to do, you've got an out. What we're protecting against is the idea of you wake up one morning and go, eh, I don't like the shirt Nick's wearing. I'm out. Like, I love your shirt, by the way. But the point being that like, you can't have the random reasons out because that crushes valuations and makes your business less predictable. And even investors see it that way too. They understand termination for cause. If your product sucks, that's bad either way. They can't have the flexibility of termination for convenience or random out clause. Beautiful. I love it. And the reason that I asked that as you listen to a lot of Todd's answers is anytime you're explaining something to your buyer saying, hey, this is the lever or this is this is the thing that we can or can't do, having a reason to back it up that is sound logic makes it more real and credible for the buyer. So Todd, this has been an incredible episode, but we're running out of time. And so we got to move to our final question. And our final question is this. We've talked about a lot of really great things salespeople should be doing. The last question is about a shouldn't. The last question is, what is one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to break because it hurts them more than it helps? It's this idea that logic is polarizing. And so what I mean by that is we so often combat a customer that's got an objection or got an issue with logic, right? So often we even start our presentations with logic, with all the awards we've won. And we have our NASCAR slide that's got all the companies that we're so proud of. Back in 1620, there was a philosopher named Sir Francis Bacon that first theorized the idea of cognitive bias, meaning we take in all logic to support a prevailing opinion even if that logic goes against our prevailing opinion. Like go through your Twitter and Facebook and look at all the political posts and see whether or not if something supports your argument, you go, yeah, I'm in. Like that's a great one. I'm going to file that. If somebody comes at you with something that's against you and against your argument, your brain goes, here's why that's BS. And now I'm going to use that to argue, right? We become stronger. Feelings and emotion are what bring us together, which is why story-based telling is everything. When I teach the four levers here, I tell it through a story about Schlumberger, right? That's what brings us together. The way this shows itself in selling environments so often is that we will combat a argument against you with logic. Like, hey, what about the ROI? You're going to miss out on a million dollars. The brain is going, that's BS, right? We are pushing people away learn your stories, get to know your customers, make sure that you've got a close relationship with your account managers and your client success team. One last tip on that one. This is might sound awkward, but when you get a renewal done, I would advise your client success reps to ask one question that will feed you so many great stories. That one question is, hey, I think I know why you renewed. Like we're awesome, right? Like I'm biased, but with all that's going on and the economy and all that, why did you renew with us? Mm-hmm. And then just shut up and listen. The stories you're going to hear are going to feed your sales team to be able to counter and impact everything that they do. I just had a, a client of mine start doing that. And like the last call, they're like, dude, we just got three things we didn't even know our technology did. <laughs> so start asking that question. Logic polarizes, stories and emotion bring us together. Amazing. Todd, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody stick around for a 60-second recap coming up soon. 
Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Woodpecker. When you're sending a sales email, you generally want to avoid putting punctuation in the subject line. If you've got an exclamation point, it makes it seem like you're shouting at them. Look at this amazing offer. And a question mark just smells salesy. So avoid punctuation. Now, if you want to steal my full sales cadence from my friends at Woodpecker, there's a link in the show notes for you to go get it and try it for free. Your Zoom Info actionable insight tactic is called Jane's Moving Up. Why? Because that's the email subject line you'll use when you get a real-time notice that your prospect Jane just got promoted. From there in the email, explain how Zoom Info helps rising sales leaders win their first 90 days on the job by highlighting coaching opportunities or supporting a team-wide prospecting push. And you can try out this trigger-based email template for prospect promotion and four other scenarios inspired by Zoom Info's go-to-market plays. Link in the show notes. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox if I don't get a reply in two days. That means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you wanna follow up on time every time, you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day, pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. Your top four takeaways from this episode with Todd Capone include number one, there are four levers in a negotiation that can buy a customer a discount. Number one, volume. Number two, timing of cash. Number three, length of commitment. And then number four, timing of the deal. Number two, when you describe those levers, explain upfront that there's tremendous value in us being able to predict And we are willing to pay you for that in form of a discount. So don't just give it away for free. Number three, tell everyone you can possibly find in the sales cycle what those four levers are as early as possible. So that number four, you can hold firm in a negotiation later on because you have early helped evangelize your champion on how you're being transparent in price, and you can just fall back on painting those trade-offs again if power comes in and they want their pound of flesh. Alrighty, Nick, how can people help us out here? Well, you already told everybody, Armand, if you didn't know, we have been documenting a lot of our learnings and best practices from the podcast onto a YouTube channel. So if you're the type of person that wants a little bit of visual aid or a deeper dive into some of the specific tactics that we talked about from Nick and Armand, you may get value from that. There's a link in the show notes to go check it out. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Today's show is brought to you by Exactly Forecasting, which is a flexible sales forecasting solution that uses AI and data to help you call an accurate sales forecast. 
Gartner says over half of sales leaders don't have high confidence in their forecast. One way we recommend to improve your forecast is to align as a team on explicit attributes that must be true in order to deem a deal forecastable. That way your forecast will get clearer and the team will know where to focus efforts. We put together a forecasting 101 guide with our friends at Exactly. Get it for free in the show notes. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90-Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes.